In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Today is the ninth Sunday after Trinity, and we are continuing in the twelfth chapter of Luke's Gospel. You'll remember that last week we read the parable about the master and the servants and how the master goes away to the wedding feast and the servants that are on task, those that are ready and expecting the master to return and they're diligent in their work, are blessed when the master returns. We read even that the master goes so far as to uh, serve them. He washes them and so they're blessed by their master. Right after this parable, St. Peter asks a great question. He says, uh, Lord, who is this for? Who are you talking to? Are you talking to us or somebody else? Which is a really good question. And it's a question that's asking, is this a parable for insiders or for outsiders? See, if you're an insider in the, in the, in the gospel, if you're an insider in a... In a, in a um, in a group, if you're an insider in a club, you get certain privileges, right? If you're a member of a group, uh, you expect that you're going to get certain privileges. And this is the understanding that Peter had of the Jewish community, of the Jewish faith. If you were an insider, these are the things that you got. If you were a member of the the Jewish nation and you practiced uh, your worship in the temple, uh, then you were going to receive certain benefits. And, of course, there are some Christians that believe this way uh, still about the faith. They think, oh, if I'm inside the church, if I've received baptism, if I take Holy Communion, I'm an insider and I've got benefits coming to me, right? There's a certain kind of, um, uh, of, of expectancy, right? An entitlement, if you will, that these are the blessings that are owed to me or do me. And so this is the question really that Jesus answers rather than Peter's of who are you talking to, us or to, to all people. And he answers that question by saying, uh, the master that comes and finds that his servants aren't doing what they're supposed to do will be disciplined, they'll be punished. And so he says, those that to much has been given, much will be expected. Right? And this is justice, right? We understand God's justice, that if we've been given a lot, we have a lot of responsibility. If we have lots of gifts, we're supposed to be using those gifts. If we have talents and abilities, we're supposed to be using those talents and abilities for the gospel. And so the Lord returns and he says, what have you done with what I've given you? And this is a clear understanding of justice. So Christ's response to Peter is, uh, be careful about what it is that you've been given. Because if you do see yourself as an insider, if you do see yourself as one who has uh, many gifts given by God, uh, then you should be all the more wary about the Lord coming because he's going to expect a lot more from you than from somebody who might be an outsider. And he even covers the outsiders. And he says the outsider who doesn't know much uh, won't be as expected to have returned as much. And so now the gospel lesson that we have today is immediately following that, that understanding of justice, that uh, we will be judged based on what we have and what it is that we've been given. And Jesus answers it with a teaching, not a parable, but a teaching about signs. And he's saying, pay attention to the sign, pay attention to the evidence before you. And the primary evidence that Jesus is drawing our attention to is the evidence of himself. He's drawing our attention to the evidence of himself and his ministry. So uh, we need to talk first about signs and what we mean by evidence. A sign is not a symbol. 
Okay, we have symbols in the church. Symbols are very important. We have symbols all over. Uh, all of our different altar hangings will have symbols. This is a symbol for the name of Christ. These are Greek letters indicating uh, Jesus's name, Yehus. Uh, this is a symbol of the cross, or this is a symbol of the cross. These are symbols. They're not just reminding us of a Roman style of crucifixion. They're reminding us about Jesus, and it's a symbol for His sacrifice for us, and it's a symbol for sacrificial love. It means lots of things. Symbols are very important. But they're not signs. They're not evidence. A sign is evidence. Right? A cloud is evidence for rain. It's not a symbol for rain. When you see a cloud in the sky, you say, it's probably going to rain. If you see a rain cloud. Jesus says, if you see a wind coming from the south, right, coming from a hot and arid place, expect it to be hot. So he's saying these are signs that are evidence for what's going to come. We say that sacraments are signs, right? The sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. The sacraments that we receive, baptism and holy communion, are signs, they're evidence of God's grace. Of course, the most profound sign is Jesus himself. You'll remember that the angels go to the shepherds and they say, He will be to you a sign. Right? He will be to you a sign. He is a sign of God's grace. Jesus in the manger is a sign for the shepherds that God's kingdom has come. He is evidence that God's kingdom has come. And then he gives us these two very important signs, these two very important evidences of his ministry, which is fire and baptism. So fire, of course, is the sign of the Holy Spirit. It's evidence of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, we're constantly seeing fire. And this fire is a consuming and raging fire that will purify us. Many of the fathers will say that the fire of hell is the same fire of heaven. It's just, what, which fire are you ready for? See, if you, our hearts are on things that will be destroyed, if our heart is on money, or our heart is on crops, or our heart is on barns, or on buildings, or on uh, people, if that's where our hope is, then when those people die, and those barns burn down, and those crops are destroyed, and that money is spent, our hope is gone. And so that fire that consumes us, that purifies us, will destroy all things that aren't eternal. And if our hope is in things that are not eternal, our hope will be destroyed. Rather, if our hope is in God and in eternity, then that hope becomes illumined like a sword or like a pure metal that's put into a fire. It begins to glow and shines with the same color of that metal. A great example of this is, uh, is electric stoves, right, with the coils. Right? Some food drops on those coils. What happens to the food? It burns. It's destroyed. But the metal changes color based on the amount of heat. It starts off red, and then as it gets hotter, it becomes more and more yellow. And if the stove could get that hot, it would become a, a high yellow or even a white hot heat. And the metal would stay. It's being transformed because of its strength by the heat. This is how we experience the Holy Spirit if we allow God to discipline us and we allow Him to be the one to establish our hope, then we become white in that hot heat of God's grace rather than being burned away. 
The baptism that he's talking about is the baptism of his death. And that might be confusing because we think, oh, well, he was baptized in water. Well, yes, he was. But this is a baptism that he's looking forward to. He's already been baptized by water by John the Baptist. And the fathers say that his birth and his baptism and his death on the cross are all the same thing. They're all Jesus lowering himself to serve us. So God becomes man. That's a lowering. That's a dying. Christ ascends into the waters of baptism, dying to death and sin. That's a dying. He goes onto the cross to die. The womb can't hold him. The waters of baptism can't hold him. Death can't hold him. He comes up out of all of those and rises to newness of life. And this is the baptism that he brings. And Jesus is saying, these are the things that you need to focus on. This is the evidence that you need to be thinking about. My fire and my baptism, that is a sacrificial love through death of self. He's saying, these are the things that you need to focus on. And if you're focusing on other things like who's inside and who's outside, and does this really apply to me or not, we're not focused on Jesus. This is what the Lord is saying to the prophet Jeremiah here in chapter 23 of, of Jeremiah. Uh, we're reading where the Lord says, you know, there's lots of prophets out there, but they're not all talking about me. Some of them are talking about themselves, right? There are lots of prophets that like to talk about themselves and that like to talk about other signs. And they like to talk about the signs of war and famine and they want to talk about politics and they want to talk about danger in the world and all that stuff. They're trying to frighten us to sell us something. Right? This is the secret of all marketing. This is the secret of the evening news, right? Wait for 11 o'clock to tell us three things that will kill you in your own kitchen, right? That's the byline of every evening news I've ever seen, right? After the break, two things in our uh, city that could kill you, right? They're selling fear. And there are prophets still today, like in the time of Jeremiah, that are selling fear. That are saying, beware of war, beware of famine, beware of these politicians, watch out for all this stuff. They're trying to sell fear. They're not talking about God. And the Lord in Jeremiah is saying, those that are preaching my word are the ones that are preaching my truth and who are bringing people faithfully to me. And he says this, but let him who has my word... Speak faithfully. Who is God's word? Who's the word of God? Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. The beginning of John's gospel, he says, In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was? That's right, was God. So when we preach the word, we're preaching Jesus. This is the word that we're supposed to be preaching. We're supposed to be talking about Jesus. Fires and famines and politicians come and go. He doesn't go. Our focus and hope need to be in Him. And if we preach Him faithfully, then His word, He says, is like fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock. Because He's bringing true peace. See, the world sells fake peace, right? The world sells fake peace. The peace of, let's just go along to get along. Let's just uh, uh, you know, keep our mouths shut and just uh, forget about what people say that maybe isn't true. And uh, let's just appease people. That's not the peace of God. The peace of God is righteousness and truth. And that peace can feel like division. It feels like division in families. 
Right? We've all been in families where we speak to our aunts or our mothers or our brothers and sisters and we say, here's truth, here's right, and here's wrong. And they say, I don't want to hear that. Right? We've all had that experience of a loved one saying, I don't want to hear about that truth. I just want to do what I want to do. And who are you to talk about the Word of God or the Law of God? They don't want to hear it. And it divides us. We want to make sure, of course, that those divisions really are about the Lord and not about us. But if we're faithfully ministering to the gospel, we're faithfully reminding the world that there is a justice and a judgment that comes based on how we respond to the word of God, then there will always be division from that. And the writer to the Hebrews reminds us that this is a race that requires endurance because there are hardships that the Lord describes as discipline. These hardships the Lord describes as discipline. You don't need to endure things that are fun. We don't endure easy things. Right? We endure hard things. We endure discipline, which the writer of the Hebrews also calls training. Right? He says discipline is training. We all know that, right? To be self-disciplined is to allow oneself to be trained, right? I'm in training. It means that I'm having to give things up. People that are in training, it's more about what they give up than about what they do, isn't it? Right? If I'm in training for something, it means I'm going to have to give up something else. And so the Lord says that His discipline is difficult, but He does it because He loves us. Because he wants us to come into his holiness and righteousness to be surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses who are encouraging us to seek God and to place our hope in him. You remember that here in in Hebrews chapter 12, this is coming after chapter 11, where we saw that great cloud of witnesses. Do you remember him naming everybody in that cloud of witnesses last week? We talked about Enoch, we talked about Noah, we talked about Abram and Sarah, right? They were faithful through obedience. Do you remember that? They were obedient to God. They endured the hardships of the world and they were obedient to His Word. And these are the great cloud of witnesses that are surrounding us and encouraging us to endure this world and to allow ourselves to be disciplined and trained. That means focused upon the Word of God. So often we get disciplined and we think, Oh, you're just being mean. You're just being mean by taking that stuff away from me. You're mean by making me uh, you know, have discipline in my life, right? But a good parent doesn't take away these things or, or apply uh, discipline to a child's life because of meanness, but to strengthen them, right? And to get them ready to focus them upon the task that has to be done because we know that it requires this focus uh, to get to that, that final objective. And that objective is pretty clear in the letter to the Hebrews. Hmm? A little clearer than a lot of people would like it to be, right? I think a lot of preachers, myself included, would be tempted to try to soften uh, the letter to the Hebrews. How does he end it? Strive for peace with everyone. So again, we've got that word strive, right? It's just like the word train and endure to strive, right? It means we've got to put effort in. We've got to have focus. You can't strive and not know where you're going, right? And we're not striving and hoping for things that will be destroyed, but for things that are eternal. So we're striving for that true peace, the peace of Christ, right? Which passes all understanding. That's the focus upon Him as the sign, upon His sacrificial love, upon His gift to the world, upon His, His Word. 
And through that striving, it says, we receive holiness. Right? Holiness is living according to God's law. And here's how he concludes it. Without which, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, we will not see the Lord. Because He is holy. In other words, we'll be destroyed and not be able to participate in that holiness. That pure metal that takes that heat is seeing the Lord because it becomes one with the heat. You can't point to that hot stove and tell me what part's the heat and what part's the metal. They're one. So we're one with the Lord experiencing His holiness when we allow those things of the world to drop away. We don't concern ourselves with those things, but we strive and endure with discipline for the ways of God. Earlier in Luke's Gospel, Jesus says, This generation gets one sign. One sign. The sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. What happened to Jonah? He died and was in the belly of the whale three days, and then he was brought back up onto the world to do the work that God had given him to do. This is the sign of Christ dying and descending into the tomb for three days and rising again. Jesus is saying, this is your only sign. This is all the evidence that you need. This is all the focus that you need to have is upon my sacrifice for the world. And if you would take up your own cross, if you would sacrifice with me, you will participate in my holiness and in my love and receive my peace. May we today know that one sign. Look continually for that one sign of Christ's baptism, of his self-sacrificial love, and may we endure to the end, surrounded by that great cloud of witnesses that's cheering us on every step that we might be obedient in faith.